This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're going to do denunciations momentarily where I denounce those worthy of being denounced. But uh, a couple of you have been very patient to, to stick around on hold, so it's only right that you get an opportunity to be heard. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Russell is in White Plains. What's on your mind, Russell? Hey, Frank, I haven't looked at it as closely as that judge, but my impression was that the mother of the baby killed it, Charles Lindbergh's wife, because she had a history of schizophrenia, and postpartum depression is something that they didn't even think was possible in those days. And the fact that Lindbergh, the telltale thing is Charles Lindbergh volunteered that the baby may have been dropped out the window, because I think he knew his wife dropped that baby out the window, and he put up the ladder to make it look that way. But one thing, I mean, a 20-month-old baby, I don't know, Frank, you know your child. My son's 39 years old today, but if he was 20 months old, even if he had a big head or I don't know what she was trying to say, I would not be doing vivisection no. on oh, him. No, I neither, would, neither would I. But right. you know the thing—the thing about Lindbergh, as incredible as an, an incredible aviator as he was, and as accomplished as he was in general, he was also someone that was interested in Nazi Germany and oh. the kind of things they were doing in Nazi Germany, which did include eugenics. So I, I could see the guy having an interest in eugenics. Frank. Planned Parenthood started in eugenicism, and you pointed out you have to take history in context. That was a widespread belief. And Lindbergh, I remember growing up thinking Lindbergh was a Nazi. Now I think he was anti-war, okay? Well, I'm not saying, look, look, I'm just saying the guy did have an interest in what was going on in Germany in the 1930s, which I think did include eugenics. I'm not saying that he's a Nazi at all. Well, so did Charles Evans Hughes, or you know, the, the, the justice. That right, the today. bearded iceberg, whose whose granddaughter still calls this show from time to time. Oh, well, that's good. Hey, but Frank, you know, I I would have liked you to ask that judge if she ever had children. I just would have liked you. Uh, to she, ask. Well, she mentioned her daughter was one of her researchers. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah. And I, I read in the thing, uh, Lindbergh never had another child with that wife that was schizophrenic, but he did have another baby with somebody else, apparently. Interesting, yeah. In uh, Europe, there were some children of Lindbergh that were that were out there, I believe. But it is interesting. A fascinating guy, uh, certainly a complicated guy. And, you know, there's an interesting uh, miniseries on HBO uh, a couple of years ago. I, I talked about it at the time, but it's about maybe three years old now. I recommended this to my friend uh, Judge Lantry because he really enjoyed The Man in the High Castle. And I think this, if you like The Man in the High Castle, you'll like what I'm about to describe to you. It's called The Plot Against America. And there's not a lot of big-name actors in it. There's a lot of actors that you'd recognize. But the only real big names that I can remember being in it, and again, it's a few years since I saw it, were uh, John Turturro, 
and Winona Ryder, both of whom are great in it. And one of the one of the I'm not going to spoil too much of it, but it's an alternate version of 1940 America. And in that miniseries, in that alternate reality, Charles Lindbergh is running for president and he in part is responsible for delaying America's entry into World War Two. So it's uh, really an interesting thing, and they they have some interesting takes on the uh, on the Lindbergh situation. Not the Lindbergh situation, really, but Charles Lindbergh specifically. All right, um, it is now time for me to unburden myself of the frustrations that people that irk me cause me to endure all week long. By the way, before we get to this. Let me tell you, they are making a huge mistake at America's museums. The American Museum of Natural History, which I believe I am actually banned from, they are closing down two whole halls of Native American artifacts and education. Why? Because of a new Biden administration rule. It's very interesting. We're going to get into it with uh, Elizabeth Weiss in just a bit. She was on our program, and we got a great response to her when she was on the program, talking about repatriation of bones in museums. So we're going to talk about what's happening now. But first... The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciations. I must first begin by denouncing the president of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., who went to see a Coldplay concert. No, there's nothing wrong with Coldplay. I'm not denouncing him for seeing Coldplay. I'm denouncing him because he was flown in because concert goers created unforeseen traffic complications. He used his presidential helicopter to see Coldplay. Okay, he's now been widely criticized for using this presidential helicopter to attend this Coldplay concert north of the capital in Manila, bypassing the area's notorious traffic jams. Finally, we have found the next job for Chris Christie. If Chris, if um, Fernand Marcos Jr. chooses not to run for re-election, Chris Christie ought to be the next president of the Philippines because this apparently they they stand for this kind of thing over there. This is just so arrogant and so elitist. You can't deal with the traffic. You can't wait in line. So you're going to have your presidential helicopter swoop you into the concert? Give me a break. Ferdinand Marcos Jr., I do denounce you. I must also denounce George Conway, who is, um, I think he's the ex-husband of Kellyanne Conway or estranged husband. He, she was, he was once Kellyanne Conway's husband. I'm not sure of their current marital status. But he's one of the leading anti-Trump uh, Republicans on cable news. And I have to tell you, you know, he was... He's, he tweeted something that I thought was really reprehensible the other day. He was making a, a tweet about Donald Trump's attorney, Alina Haba. Now, I don't know if Alina Haba is a good attorney or a bad attorney. I, I can see, I've heard things that seem to suggest both things. But she, he posts a photo of Alina Haba and a link to an article about 
not having uh, about her not doing the right thing, maybe not making the proper objections or something along those lines. And this is what this guy tweets as his comment to this Alina Haba article, who was the Trump attorney. I was going to tweet, Silicone doesn't make you smart in response to something on here, but I thought better of it and didn't do it. And I'm not going to say whom it was about. Smiling face emoticon. It's, he's basically sending a dig at Haba's appearance and implying that she's had plastic surgery on her breasts by saying he wasn't sending it. I mean, this is absurd. I mean, this is the worst type of sexism. And it shouldn't matter whether, you know, this is a, a Trump hater or if he was a Trump fan. This is what drives people crazy about about women being objectified in the public sphere and in the workplace. If you have a problem with her clients, say so. Say what the problem is. If you have a problem with the lawyering that she does, say so. Say what she did wrong. But for you to basically say, uh, oh, you know, she's got silicone breast implants and, oh, I'm not going to say that's why she didn't do a good job or that doesn't make you a good attorney. It's a pretty overt and bold case of sexism. And even MSNBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin scolded George Conway for this uh, because this is, to me, just completely contemptible. George Conway, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Snopes.com. You know, I used to check Snopes.com all the time because it used to be a great source and a great website for checking out if something was true or not or if it was an urban myth. Now, it does seem like there's a little bit more of a political agenda here and a lot less independent fact-checking going on. So they marked, they had to, they, on Saturday, they marked a story as true about, a, a true story about President Biden wearing a hard hat backwards as false. President Biden did wear a hard hat backwards. And that's a fact. And they marked it as false. They got so much heat for marking a true story false that eventually they reversed their own ruling and the story is now marked true. So maybe you saw the photo. I mean, it's not that big of a deal, which is why it's so confounding to me that they would go out of their way to lie about whether the story is true or not. So at issue was a photo of President Biden wearing a backwards hard hat, which went viral on the right um, on all over social media, garnering enough attention to warrant a Snopes check. So the photo, which shows Biden wearing this hard hat backwards, was included in the Snopes article that first called the story false. The first tweet used in the Snopes article was a zoomed-in photo of Biden wearing a hard hat backwards. The close-up from a photo of Biden wearing the hard hat backwards was shared by Minnesota Democrat Amy Klobuchar. Big shout-out to our listeners in Minneapolis, WCCO. They then also included a tweet which showed the same hat on a construction worker's head facing the other direction. Pointing out the bill of the hat, the Snopes article then accused the construction worker of being the one wearing the hard hat wrong rather than Biden wearing the hard hat backwards. Now, it was total nonsense. Biden had the hard hat on backwards. Now, it doesn't mean anything. Could still protect your head if you're wearing it backwards. But the fact that they went out of their way to mark it as false 
when it was so clearly true. It really, I think, undermines the credibility of Snopes as an independent fact-checking organization. Snopes.com, I do denounce you. I also want to denounce the Long Island midwife who faked vaccines. Oh, yes. This Long Island midwife falsified vaccine records for about 1,500 school-aged children, according to the New York State Department of Health, which uh, has fined her 50000 excuse me, $300,000. So the authorities said this scheme began at the start of the 2019-2020 school year after a measles epidemic that had led New York to end religious exemptions for immunizations. The new rules meant that about 26,000 children who had previously been exempted needed to get vaccinated to return to school that fall. But instead of administering the required vaccines, the midwife, Jeanette Breen of Baldwin, New York, gave thousands of homeopathic oral pellets to school-aged children and then falsified their immunization records. I mean, that's nothing to mess around with. Really nothing to mess around with. What's not clear to me, based on the reporting of this story so far, is if the parents, if all the parents anyway, knew that those children were not getting the measles vaccine. I don't know if she was in league with the parents and they were both pulling a con on the school system or if she was trying to get one over on the parents as well. I think a lot of these parents were in on it, though. I want to denounce these cleaning crews that let more than 30 cats starve in Woodhaven. More than 30 cats were abandoned in a filthy Woodhaven apartment and rescued on Wednesday by a local animal rescue group. Big shout out to Mike and New Rochelle for uh, bringing the story to my attention. I wouldn't have seen it. More than 30 cats. So you have Megan Lacari, who's the president of Puppy Kitty NY City, said she received a call for help on Wednesday regarding someone kicking a cat out of a store and hitting it with a broomstick on Jamaica Avenue across from Forest Parkway. The resident sent Lacari a photo of three cats and added that there were more in an abandoned apartment next door. So the rescue team dispatched a number of volunteers to help. They found out that there were 34 cats in the apartment and that the tenant was evicted around January 4th, meaning the cats were there without food or water since then. So according to Ms. Lakari, the apartment's landlord hired a cleaning crew and the workers started throwing the cats out of the window. And there's photos and videos showing the cats roaming nearby stores and streets. So this group, Puppy Kitty NY City, then called the 102nd Precinct for help, and authorities confirmed the incident to the Queen's Chronicle and added that a total of 12 cats were reported injured. They have no idea how many in total because they could have, you know, run away or been injured or even worse. This is really reprehensible. If you're a cleaning crew, that is actually going to be throwing cats to the wolves, essentially, not literally, but figuratively. I mean, I think this is just horrible. First of all, shame on the tenant that was evicted and left these 30 cats to starve. But the first thing that this cleaning crew should have done when they got in there is called one of these animal rescue groups. 
I want to denounce the environmental protesters that threw soup at the Mona Lisa in France, calling for the right to healthy and sustainable food. Now, I love the environment as much as the next guy. I, I love healthy and sustainable food as much as the next guy. But there's no need to throw soup on a 16th century masterpiece by Leonardo da Vinci, which is probably one of the most famous paintings in the world, maybe the most famous painting in the world. And thankfully, it was behind protective glass, so it wasn't damaged. But who are the losers that do this? To me, when people do this, whatever your cause is, whether it's for the environment, whether it's for saving the whales, whether it's for helping the Palestinians, I actually find that you lose support for your for your cause. I uh, I think this is really absolutely the wrong way wrong way to go as far as I'm concerned. I want to denounce the state of Mississippi. Mississippi is evidently the worst state in the whole country for dating. Oh yes. If you are single and looking to mingle, do not go to the state of Mississippi. This is according to a new study uh, that was conducted by BedBible.com, which is a sexual wellness website. Probably a non-scientific study, but why take a chance, right? If you're looking to date and meet somebody, Mississippi, probably not the state for you. I want to denounce Philips Respironics. Uh, Philips Respironics was manufacturing these CPAP machines. CPAP machines, as I understand it, they're a type of ventilator that help you if you have sleep apnea. You put it on while you're asleep at night and you're able to breathe rather than have your breathing stop when you go to sleep and have a lot of problems. Well, this group, uh, Philips Respironics, put out some really bad CPAP and BiPAP ventilators, and they've issued a, rec- a recall stating that these polyester-based, the, the polyester-based foam that's used to reduce sound and vibration in the devices could unknowingly be breaking down with use and absorbed into the user's body, potentially leading to health injuries. The FDA is saying that there could have been as many as 561 deaths, deaths linked to these recalled machines. Now, I recognize mistakes happen, but if you're going to be selling someone a piece of health equipment, is it too much to ask backwards and forwards that this health equipment not kill anybody? And now we have 561 people that might be dead because they use, use these machines. Phillips Respironics, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the passenger who was arrested after running onto an airfield at LAX. We don't have this gentleman's name yet, but a man was arrested after exiting a door at the Tom Bradley International Terminal and running into an airfield at LAX Wednesday night. Airport police were alerted to the security breach around 8 p.m. and immediately attempted to detain the ticketed passenger. I can't imagine the delay to everybody's trip and just the overall sense of annoyance that both passengers 
and airport staff had to deal with. Not to be outdone, I must also denounce Darnell Silver Collins. Darnell Silver Collins was a Delta passenger, and he is now facing federal charges of interfering with the crew and assaulting passengers during a flight from Amsterdam Amsterdam to Salt Lake City. According to a criminal complaint obtained by Fox, Darnell Silver Collins was restrained on an incoming flight after reports he was being unruly and abusive. This gentleman holds dual citizenship with the Netherlands and the U.S. See, it's those dual citizens. I always warn you about the dual citizens. You got to pick a side. Got to pick a team. So witnesses told authorities that Collins was loud, disruptive, threatening, and abusive to other passengers. According to court documents, witnesses said Collins was seen tapping and following passengers. In one instance, Collins was accused of grabbing one female passenger as she came out of the bathroom. So Collins is also accused of getting on his knees and turning around on his seat to speak to other passengers. A flight attendant worried that the situation could escalate and moved Collins to the back of the aircraft where several more passengers had to be removed from around him. Nothing worse than a disruptive passenger who, by the way, then started spitting on the other passengers before berating a crew member. So, Darnell Silver Collins, for the spitting alone, I do denounce you. All right. If you have comments on anyone that I have denounced, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. Three open lines if you want to comment. We will uh, let you hear about American Indian artifacts in just a moment and why they are being taken out of American museums, including one of the most visited in the world, the American Museum of Natural History. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Perhaps you've seen the headline and maybe your eyes sort of rolled. Maybe you didn't even take notice of it at all. But what we are seeing in the headlines these days is one of the most significant and I think one of the saddest moments with respect to American cultural history and those who like to study it. The headline a few days ago all over the place was leading museums remove native displays amidst new federal rules. The American Museum of Natural History, which is very much an institution in New York and really around the world, is closing two major halls as museums around the nation respond to updated policies from the Biden administration. What are those policies? How does it affect museums? And why should you care if you're not necessarily 
necessarily a museum goer. Well, we have one of the uh, foremost experts on this subject and related issues. Somebody we've been kind enough to talk, who's been kind enough to talk to us before, Dr. Elizabeth Weiss. She's a professor of anthropology and the author of the book "Repatriation and Erasing the Past." Elizabeth, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming in studio. Thank you for having me. You know, uh, I know you're temporarily residing in New York. All the New Yorkers that I talk to, a lot of the New Yorkers that I grew up with, they're itching to move out of New York, to move to places like Pennsylvania, North Carolina, even Arizona. I know you've lived in Arizona as well. How are you liking uh, living in New York? Are you dodging, um, you know, are you dodging bullets every other day? How's it going? Uh, You know what? I love it. We actually are having a great time, Nick and I. we, um, you know, are enjoying the nightlife and, you know, went to see a play the other, um, the other week and we've been to all the museums and just having a really great time. I also think that most New Yorkers are extremely friendly to me. I feel the same way. You know, one of the things that uh, as a lifelong New Yorker, and I hope always to be a lifelong New Yorker, that, you know, frustrates me a little bit is all these folks that I grew up with, a lot of these folks that I that I work with and see and my neighbors, they love to get down on New York. It's so fashionable to talk about how difficult it is to live here and how they fantasize about moving elsewhere. Real When really, I always like to point out to these people that New York is part of what made you who you are and there's a lot of people that would love to live here so i'm glad that you guys are having a uh, a good experience uh the nick you reference is your husband nick pope who's yes. also been a, a regular guest on this show who's uh, just terrific uh a little bit a lot i want to get into with you this uh this situation at the american museum of natural history is one of those things that causes some people to just raise their eyebrows and other people to not necessarily understand what the big deal is what exactly is the new policy from the Biden administration that's leading to these changes at museums, including the American Museum of Natural History? Well, it's twofold. One of it is changes that is that are specific to the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And they've gone through a huge slew of changes and regulations that include things like um, requiring museums to get um, to get permission to show any uh, artifacts from tribes, um, to you know consulting with tribes about how to handle skeletal remains and so forth. But the other aspect of it is the Biden administration has added a layer that is um, across board many um, different government organizations about traditional knowledge or what they call um, indigenous knowledge. And so the, that is on top of the NAGPRA in this case. And basically what it means is that you have to take into account what they're calling traditional knowledge and treat it as fact, not be able to question it, and um, it will be apart from Freedom of Information Act um, requests because they're, because native knowledge might need to be secret according to the tribes. So you're basically getting, um, you're basically being required to get information from tribes that could be just made up. 
You cannot investigate whether it is valid or not. So you said a great deal there that I want to uh, follow up on. Uh, before I follow up on each of the things that you say, though, explain to folks why these halls are closing at the American Museum of Natural History. What specific policy are these museums I- adhering to? What, what What's going on? So basically... What they're adhering to is the requirement to get permission to display and keep materials um, from Native American tribes. Whether those tribes are recent tribes or ancient tribes, it doesn't matter. They're going to have to get permission from somebody to display them now. So if I have a museum, the uh, Frank Morano Museum of Natural History and Culture, and I want to have a a Cherokee display, displaying uh, information about the Cherokee, which might include Cherokee artifacts, maybe even Cherokee skeletal remains, I can't do that without getting permission from the Cherokee tribe in the 21st century. Absolutely. That's that's exactly it. But it's worse than that because... um, you would have to get permission from all the tribes in the region. So it might be as many as two dozen tribes because there's not agreement with um, who's, who's most connected to whichever artifacts. So what this means for the museum is that they're literally going to shut down two halls, take everything away from display or cover it up, and then... They're going to consult with all the tribes that they need to, which could be, as I said, dozens, and then reopen them under um, the new whatever guidelines those tribes gave them. They did this for the Northwest Coast Hall um, that reopened in, I believe, 2019. It took them five years to from going from closing the hall to reopening it. And it cost $19 million. Wow. And what you have is you have a new hall that has maybe a quarter of the artifacts. So they've taken away a whole bunch of them. But they also infuse the whole exhibit with all sorts of superstitious nonsense that the tribes have told them must be included. For example, there's a statement that says that um, the elders have seen the spirits uh, come out of certain boxes with artifacts and take this seriously. Um, And perhaps most um, absurdly, there's a case that has a warning symbol that says um, that these artifacts are objects of power and you might want to not look at them and you're not allowed to take photographs of them because um, they were shamans' masks and therefore they could perhaps cause some um, supernatural harm. You're kidding. Wow. And so um, that's like the, uh, at the absurd level. What we also don't see is the artifacts that they've decided not to put back. One of them, for example, in the Northwest Hall, includes a bird bone whistle that they've decided not to put on display because the elders have said that if you blow in that whistle, you could summon supernatural beings. (laughs) And so they decided to take this seriously and... 
um, and not put it on display. This was all done before the requirement to take it seriously. And so you can just imagine how much more absurd it is when they're not going to have the opportunity to say, you know what, that's really just superstition. It might be a fun ghost story, but we're not going to take it seriously in a museum. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Elizabeth Weiss. Uh, she's the author of the book Repatriation and Erasing the Past. Now, uh, just to, I, I clearly, you persuaded me as to the validity of your argument and why they, the Biden administration and these museums should not be going in this direction. But just to play devil's advocate, a lot of people who are uh, part of the these indigenous tribes might say, hey, look, why should anybody be getting to display um, artifacts, remains, anything from my tribe without our tribe's permission? If it's so important to this museum to display a Cherokee, a Navajo, a whatever tribe, um, you know, cultural history display, why not simply just get our permission and work with us so that we could come up with mutually agreed upon terms? I think that there is an argument for that um, on two levels. Um, One thing is like repatriation of remains and artifacts that are clearly linked to modern tribes. However, um, and I'm not for that, but I can understand the argument Mm -hmm. for it. Um, However, most of that work has already been done. By 2020, over 91% of the artifacts and remains in the U.S. and all the museums and universities that were clearly affiliated, clearly associated with modern tribes, has been repatriated. And the 9% or 8.5% that haven't been, it's also because some tribes don't want their materials back because they don't have storage yet Hmm. for it or so forth. So that work has been done. What we're talking about now is remains and artifacts that are not very clearly affiliated to single tribes, which makes it less of a, a weaker argument to say, let's ask the tribes. But the other thing is, one of the problems is that when you say, let's use traditional indigenous knowledge or traditional Native American knowledge, it's fine if that is part of the equation and that knowledge can be tested and questioned like the other knowledge, like scientific knowledge or historic knowledge. But when you treat it differently and you say, if somebody tells you this and they are a Native American elder, you cannot question it. You cannot ask, how long has this been around? Or how long have these taboos been around? Then they could be making stuff up. And we know that they do make stuff up, as does everybody. Um, But... um, it's ironic that in Biden's um, in Biden's administration, when they defined traditional um, knowledge, they said it did not have to be passed down. So mm. what makes it traditional? Nothing. Mm. What it's basically what they're meaning when they say traditional is basically the say-so of a Native American. Uh, We're talking with Elizabeth Weiss about the uh, rather blockbuster decision to close uh, two halls at the American Museum of Natural History. This is amidst new federal rules, and uh, a lot of folks are saying this is sudden. The uh, executive director of the museum, uh, Sean Decatur, said what might seem sudden to some is long overdue uh, to others, or he's the uh, museum's president, actually. Elizabeth, 
Elizabeth, you're an anthropologist, obviously, so you have a keen interest in this sort of a thing. Why should this matter to people that don't have your expertise and your interest in anthropology? Ultimately, who cares? Is this a debate better suited for uh, anthropology classrooms than for mainstream radio programs? I think that it it matters on many levels. One thing is that, um, you know, this is knowledge for knowledge's sake, for humanity's sake. But the other thing is that anthropologists teach forensic anthropologists through the use of of skeletal remains from the past, Native American and non-Native American. And so when you're shutting down anthropology, you're shutting down the, the future generations of forensic anthropologists who help solve crimes, identify crime victims, um, and hopefully that will lead to catching a perpetrator, um, you will you'll tie their hands in a way that Hmm. will prevent that progress. But the other thing is that these kind of rules of um, using traditional knowledge to make decisions is bleeding out into all aspects of our life. It's not just in anthropology. They're also talking about using it to make decisions about... um, you know, certain environmental decisions related to climate um, or um, art museums. One of the last things that um, one of the most recent um, sessions on of information I went um, to on this, um, they were talking about whether it was appropriate to display contemporary Native American art that had been purchased by a museum or by a person um, without asking a tribe. So the only person that would hurt is the artist. Mm. Um, And there's concerns that this is going to lead to um, bleed onto people's private properties, um, whether those are collections or, you know, um, even, you know, sometimes land. Wow. And so we... We have to be careful not to let these kind of things mushroom into something that's going to get completely out of control. The American Museum of Natural History in New York is obviously one of the most visited museums in the world. It sees about four and a half million visitors a year. And for them to go forward with this, it really does send a a pretty powerful message. And now with these closures, you have nearly 10,000 square feet of exhibition space that is off limits to to visitors. And Elizabeth, obviously, there's a lot of ancient cultures. There's a lot of ancient uh, traditions that are not necessarily tied to Native Americans. You have uh, the ancient Romans, the ancient Greeks, ancient Asian and Chinese civilizations. Are any of those cultures, any other ancient civilizations adhering to this same policy? If they find something from ancient Rome and there's a display on ancient Rome, do they have to go to the heirs of the Roman Empire and get their permission for how to display it? No, um, no, not not really. There are a few exceptions, like the Benin bronzes they're trying to repatriate to Africa. Um, there and um, certain specific artifacts, like Egypt, has been trying to get the um, 
Rosetta Stone back from England. But for the most part, those are very specific to um, specific artifacts and um, and not this kind of widespread um, closing and reconstructing of the exhibits. I hope that we can um, that that this type of repatriation or, or taking back the materials um, doesn't spread throughout museums and universities. One of the things is that there's a trend in museums now where it's you have museums that are very specific to the location. So you go to, you know, Appalachia and you have an Appalachian museum, which is fine. But the other thing type of museum is what we call an encyclopedic museum, which has stuff from all over the world. And this gives people an opportunity to, you know, figuratively, metaphorically travel the world Mm. without having to actually travel it and opens up, you know, people's minds and, um, you know, inspires children in a way that if every museum is just your region, it wouldn't do. And um, the government has given institutions a deadline until 2029 to prepare human remains and their burial belongings for repatriation. If And it is ironic that an administration that uh, came into office priding itself on science and truth is now uh, making the country take such a giant step backwards away from those things. But if people are persuaded by your argument, as I've been, what is the next step in this? Is it simply a question of uh, electing a, a different president and having that president implement a new policy? Is this a, a congressional thing? What would need to happen to allow these cultural institutions to have a bit more leeway in determining how to handle these displays? Well, I think that there are there are serious problems with um, both the repatriation law um, where it can be said to violate the First Amendment, the separation of church and state, because it basically supports or promotes only one religion. It's not neutral. It supports um, Native American religion. Um, there's also issues about um, about whether the new regulations have gone way beyond the Congress's initial um, intent. And those are the kinds of things that should be that should end up in court. <laughs> they haven't yet, but um, I know that some anthropologists are keeping a keen eye on the Chevron case that's in the Supreme Court that deals with regulations and how uh, laws can sometimes uh, morph into something that they're not intended to through regulations, as opposed to going back to Congress to make changes. And if if the Chevron case turns out in the favor that anthropologists who are against repatriation um, would like it, then basically what might happen is that you would get a pairing back of NAGPRA and other such laws. I think the traditional uh, Indian uh, knowledge that is the other, the law that's kind of laying over everything, that is very recent. And I do think that a new president that would be less convinced um, of the uh, kind of a postmodern, you know, there's there's no such thing as real science. You just have to believe what the um, elders tell you. Um, 
I think that that could be repealed. Uh, very interesting. You know, I, I think one of our listeners actually had me banned from the American Museum of Natural History, but I was able to sneak my way in there for a charity event a few months ago uh, when I was the guest of our, our station's owner, John Katzmatidis. He invited me, and it was a really nice event. But one of the things that I noticed as I was looking around, a lot of displays that had been there for 100 years or so, including some displays uh, celebrating the accomplishments of uh, Theodore Roosevelt, they now had plaques that almost serve as a disclaimer, saying something like, reconsidering the scene. Uh, Back when this display was put together, we didn't have all the information that we do now. Now we know about more context regarding, um, I don't know the words they use, but uh, American Indian tribes and, you know, uh, American explorers or settlers. But basically, it's an asterisk and a disclaimer on these displays that have been around there for 100 years. I'm just curious what your view is of that. Is that something that helps the cause of education or is that something that you take issue with? I think that it's perfectly fine to update information, but these aren't updates of information. These are basically kind of virtue signaling. Oh, we were... we had backwards views and and now we're so much more enlightened. I read all of those. I wasn't convinced that they really gave us anything new mm. um or or that the old information was actually wrong. Um it's one thing if, you know, if you've have a fossil and you thought it was 5000 years old or a skeleton you thought it was 5000 years old and you recarbon dated and it's 10000 and you make that correction. Sure. Obviously, but this kind of asterisk by it is is not that, and it's kind of funny when we went to the Nick and I went to the um, the Met, and um, we were looking at um, you know the the art there, and there was this beautiful landscape picture, and it had one of these asterisks on it, but it was like um, from a Native American perspective, this beautiful landscape picture that was just like you know. a landscape. Nothing. There was nothing political about it. Nothing, you know. It didn't have any Native American stuff in it. Just, but they had to have a Native American perspective tied on it. And that Native American was able to, um, in that plaque, in that, reinterpret this landscape to include genocide, settlers, decolonization, and climate catastrophe (laughs) and that's what this is these are the kind of things we see that is wild elizabeth it is always great talking with you i appreciate you uh, coming up to pay us a visit and uh thanks for you know being willing to stay up so late with us thank you so much uh dr elizabeth weiss you can check out her book repatriation and erasing the past if you have comments questions thoughts on any portion of our conversation you're welcome to give me a call 800-848-9222 that's 800-848-9222 this is the other side of midnight straight ahead other side of midnight it's the other side of midnight with frank morano
Springsteen singing Born to Run. Uh, this is a, a, a bumper music selection from our listener of the week, Evelyn in Bayonne, who has been one of our great listeners from the beginning. It is uh, always a treat to have her contributions to this program. And this was one of his, uh, well, excuse me, one of her contributions. And uh, unfortunately, yesterday we learned that uh, Bruce Springsteen's mother passed away. So that was uh, obviously unfortunate, but she made it to the age of 98. I mean, is there anybody here? Maybe if you're 97, the answer is no. But if you're any other age, wouldn't you take a contract for 98 right now? I know I would, absolutely. All right, I'm going to get to your calls in a moment, 800-848-9222. I don't want to rush anybody through the uh, you know their, their point if they have something substantive today to say, so we'll get to you, to you after the top of the hour. However... Uh, today, someone is coming over who may be potentially interested in adopting Ed. Ed is the cat that uh, we have been living with that is not getting along with our other cat. And we are going to see what we can do about this. And this is a very responsible person. By the way, I think Ed scratched my Charles Dickens book. So, my wife said she thought it was Carmine. I don't think so. I think he's in that office all day scratching. He scratched this book. We'll get into it. Your influence counts. Use it. 